Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm very excited to have with us today in the studio Peter Hook, current frontman of Peter Hook in the Light, and also um, very longtime bassist for New Order, among many other projects. And he has a really enjoyable new memoir, his third book, actually, Substance Inside New Order, and it tells uh, really all of the New Order story that you could ever want, I would say. <laughs> and, and not want, mate. <laughs> so one of the things that strikes me about your books is a lot of rock musicians, when they go to write their memoirs, it, it becomes very impressionistic because they're not bound by dates. They're not bound by this You mean happened- they talk rubbish? <laughs> is that a nice way of saying that most of them talk complete gibberish? You've read Billy Idols, have you? But you, you seem very precise. Is that is that just the way your brain has always worked? Yeah, I mean, it's it's an odd thing with bass players. Bass players tend to be the collectors and the collators. And it must be something in the way that, you know, you're, you're wired. Mm. You know, if you look at someone like Bill Wyman, who's a great chronicler of the Stones, a great collector of the memorabilia, it always seems to be the bass players that drive the van. Yeah. And I always end up doing the gear at the end of the night. Yes. Uh, and usually the most sober. I might have been the uh, exception that proved the rule there. <laughs> and um, they're the ones that collect. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I am like that. And I like that in a book. Um, I like a lot of detail. I like to read set lists um, and things like that. And when I came to do this, it was very important as as a way of communicating something that wasn't in the prose. And I like a book that breaks things up as opposed to being a big, long, you know, I like chats, short chapters. Yeah. So that's, yeah, it, it comes from taste. Bill Wyman, of course, famously uh, kept track of every groupie he ever slept with. I don't think you went quite that far yourself. No, no, no. I love the depiction of the early days and the formation of the sound, the transition from the the Joy Division sound to New Order, which the way you depict it, it doesn't seem like there was a whole lot of discussion about bringing in the electronics and the dance elements. It, it, is that is that accurate? You think? Yeah, I mean, we we never talked about music in, in Joy Division or New Order. And I remember Barney when he went off with Johnny Marr, and we came back together when we were on t- speaking terms, which was quite rare. <laughs> that uh, he said to me, you know, it's really funny that uh, me and Johnny sit there and talk about music for hours. Mm. And it was quite odd because in Monaco and in Revenge, I would sit there and talk about music with the others for hours. Yeah. But when we got back together against New Order, we never did it. (laughs) It was like you had something. I mean, you know, the very chemistry that makes great bands write great music is generally the same chemistry that tears them apart. Yes. Personally. Literally, the only conversation we would have when we came to write, which, you know, 98% of the time started with jamming, until the computers came along, would be, um, what can't, what sort of song do we want? Fast, dancey one. That was it. <laughs> and it, invariably, it'd be a slow ballad right. that you'd write. But right. there, there was only one criteria for your music, and that was always that it had to be fast and dancey. And if there's one thing I know, is writing a fast, dancey song is the most difficult thing in the world. You can tend to write the medium pace, ballady type um, uh, explorations of music, mid-tempo much easier than you can write a fast dancey tune we've been trying to rewrite temptation and age of consent for 40 bloody years 
Did you ever try taking one of the slow ones and just speeding it up? Does that? Uh, I did that as um, as Monaco actually. With yeah. A, a track called A Life Apart. We got okay. a fast version and a slow version out of it. But the we I remember <laughs> we we were trying to rip off Age of Consent. Right. And I remember um, desperately trying to rip it off. And in the end, I played the riff backwards. And we got way alive. You uh, kind of strongly imply in the book that one of the key transition points uh, towards the more electronic sound was the fact that you had all your gear stolen in New York. Yeah. Yeah. So the gear disappears, and then you, you had to buy a whole bunch of new stuff, and then what? How did that kind well, of... Well, in the space of a month, we'd managed to lose our lead singer, lose the bloody group, and then come over here and lose all the frigging gear. <laughs> Tony Wilson... Uh, our record company guy was just uh, aghast at how you could be so unlucky. Yeah. But, you know, I suppose it comes back to that thing where you rise like a phoenix from the ashes. Yeah. It gave us the opportunity, and um, we we had no money because we weren't insured. So, basically, we were using Joy Division's money. Right. Um, which would have been much to uh, Ian Curtis's widow's annoyance if she'd have known. (laughs) Luckily, nobody ever told her. Um, And we explored everything. Now, Bernard and Stephen were really, really um, committed to synthesizers by then. Mm. We'd used sequences with Martin Hannett in the studio on Closer as Joy Division. They had a mad interest in it. Steve had been using the syndromes and the electronic drums. And basically, Rob Gretton um, took some of Joy Division's money and said, there you go, go shopping. And they went shopping, and I bought the normal stuff, being the the dyed-in-the-wool traditional rocker, only making it louder. (laughs) You know, my bass rig went from 100 watts to uh, 1,000 yeah, uh, it was a monster. It's John Entwistle territory. Monster. Yeah. yeah, well, John Entwistle used to have his own PA. I never went that bad. <laughs> he played alongside the Who PA, and he had his own sound engineer that all he had on it was his bass. That is absolutely true. So he just like the rest. The other guy would get the rest up, and then John Entwistle's guy had put and t- put the bass in. Amazing. I, I thought that was great. A hero to all bass players. Mm, but yeah. Definitely. Yes. <laughs> so they um, basically went to a shop called Chase Music in London that specialised in the new American synthesizers. Yeah. Oberheim, Prophet, Moog. Uh, a lot of the stuff we were using, including the Syndromes, Pearl, the DMX, the Oberheim uh, drum machine, they were all American. Right. You know, this this is when the, Ameri- the Americans were leading the world with that technology. The kind of dance electronic influences, obviously you never talked about it, but you seemed to wear craft work. What else? What else was kind of bubbling under it? Well, it was Ian Curtis that turned us on to craft work. Oh. Yeah, and it was always Ian that was the the instigator of of wanting you to emulate someone. Uh, I remember famously it was Ian that when, when we started getting compared to the doors, me and Barney were like, who are the doors? (laughs) <laughs> never heard the doors and Ian went you know I've always thought that funnily enough and he played as the doors album yeah me and Barney were flabbergasted we were just like the doors <laughs> right and we actually played Rides on the Storm right. as Joy Division as a joke <laughs> and no one noticed that it was the doors they just thought it was Joy Division you know so really Ian was also a great fan of Can yeah Tago Mago Faust yeah so it was him that was pushing you in 
crowd rock that direction and we started using it and incorporating it more and more into joy division and if you look at the later songs something must break uh, isolation you were headed there we were we were on our way yeah Yeah. i mean i definitely think without a shadow of a doubt that if ian had lived he would have been singing on blue monday without a shadow of a doubt he loved it. He loved anything off the wall. The more off the wall it was, the better. He loved the fact that Joy Division as a band was so varied and, you know, had slow, intense, arty songs and then you'd have a pop song like Love Will Tear Us Apart or Transmission, complete with Ian's very dark lyrics, you know, giving it that real edge. So moving into New Order and using the sequences that Martin Hannett, as I said before, our producer had turned us on to, it would have happened. Yeah. And, you know, literally it was because you had the ability to connect these boxes together. You just did it. Right. You did, didn't know what you were doing. <laughs> Half the time you were blowing them up. I mean, and then they were costing £2,000 each. Right. A profit five was 2000 quid. This stuff was crazily expensive. Yeah, I mean, so, every band that used it was completely middle class. Right. That's what struck me when I came to do the research for the book. We were the sore thumbs that stuck out because we were working class. Right, you just had and the we were using money, a rock yeah, yeah, band's yeah. money to make electronic music, where all the others were, you know, oh, my, my mother's a teacher, <laughs> my father's a bank manager, you know, Evan 17, all of them. They were all really middle class, soppy boys, hence the haircuts. They were all dead four. It was quite weird, and we we were a bit more rough and ready, which was nice. How early did your semi-resistance to the electronics develop? You obviously liked it, you thought it was cool, but at the same time you you were a little bit of the the rear guard trying to make sure you didn't totally disappear. Yeah, I mean, what what happened was was that um, when Barney would get, and Steve would get a song going with all the synths running, it would sound wonderful. Right. And then I'd start playing, and they'd be like, you know, and I'd be like, what, you what? And so the more they didn't want you to play on it, the more you wanted to play on it, you know. Yeah. Uh, And it it led to uh, an absolute situation where, on Brotherhood, it literally became do or die. Yeah. You know, that's why the sides were split, because Barney was adamant that he wanted us to be electronic, and I was adamant that I wanted us to be a rock band. Yeah. You know, and it was that friction that made you write great music yeah once barney got his own way in my opinion the band was doomed but i mean we still you know steve and i writing acoustic songs still held our end up right the way through technique we still had some great acoustic songs some great drum and bass creations Right. You use acoustic to mean live instruments rather yeah. than, you know, not yeah, acoustic yeah. guitar yeah, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. You also had to develop different ways of playing bass to kind of fit in with the sequencers. and, and, the, and, the, and the, Yeah, I mean, it, it was a struggle. It was yeah. a struggle. Yeah, and, you, and you were fighting with them constantly. You know, it's like, it's like you were drowning. Nobody was throwing you a lifeline. <laughs> it really was. So um, every song became battle. Yeah, I've always been very competitive and I've always rose to that and there aren't many songs that I didn't get anything on I think there's only one which was on Republic which I mentioned in the yeah. I, mean, I didn't do a track by track of Republic I couldn't I just couldn't do it because it didn't feel like our our record for yeah. so many reasons and it sounded like the Pet Shop Boys but you know Stephen Haig very kindly oddly put me back on it yeah had Ian lived how big would that band have gotten have you ever thought about this like that what the path would have looked like 
Well, yeah, but I mean, you know, I, I'll never know. Yeah, of course. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, I play um, Joy Division now and get roundly criticised by the other members of Joy Division for doing it. Mm. And yet I go and play all around the world and everybody loves it and goes nuts to play in Mexico City as we did a couple of months ago. 5,000 people. I think the average age was about 21. Yeah. You know, and re- really when we got back together again, I thought it'd be just full of fat old blokes like me. So the thing is, is that to actually get to a new generation and be as revered and as um, enjoyed as much as you are by that, I think Ian would have been immensely proud of that because Ian was always the most ambitious. Mm. He was always the one that when you started to get disillusioned would literally come along, pick you up by the scruff of the neck and go, come on, we can do it. We are fantastic. Fuck them. We're off. And yeah. you go, right. Which was the problem when he was ill. You know, when he was ill, I feel that his empathy with people, he didn't want to burden them with his problems. And he didn't want you to see that he was suffering. So in your mind, you could see him being ill and you could see him having his fits and you could see him suffering. But whenever you asked him, in a kind of brainwashing way, you go, oh, absolutely fine, don't you worry about me, get on with it. Mm. And you'd be like, um. so, 22, you just get on with it. Yeah. You know, and and it was his downfall. But I mean, you know, the thing about Ian Curtis, quite rightly, is, is that there were a lot more intelligent people round him and a lot older and more experienced people round him than us three turkeys. You know, us three turkeys couldn't help him find his way out of a wet paper bag. <laughs> and I'm not surprised that we didn't yeah. turn out to be much help but you know the thing that shocks you is all the other people the professionals the adults yeah that is what i've come to you know be wary of upset about if you like now i mean the, the other thing that i've also learned over the years that really the fact that he was a singer in a group and the fact that the group were thwarted is in no way as important as the fact that his daughter lost a father yeah and his his wife lost a husband his lover lost a lover you know that really is the important thing yeah, as opposed of, yeah. to the group that's the sobering part but i mean that only comes with age right because with youth that was all i thought about right Bastard, he robbed Joy Division. Fucker. <laughs> you know, and really, it's crap. Yeah. It was, there was much more gravity to other people, his parents. You know, they never recovered from terrible, terrible thing. It's a terrible final solution to a short-term problem. Yeah. Suicide. You have so much of it. You know, recently, I've had two friends that have, have gone within a week of each other. Very close friends of each other. Yeah. Terrible. It's a terrible, terrible thing. And, um, um, you know, you can't imagine, and hopefully we'll never have to imagine how anybody could suffer from it. Yeah. So you're listening to Rolling Stone Music now. We're here with Peter Hook, and we'll be back with more in just a minute. We were talking a little bit about the band that, of course, led to 
New Order, Joy Division, and Ian and, and his sort of tragic end. And I mean, one thing I would say is it, it doesn't seem like you, you guys were young guys who had to figure out what you were going to do with your lives and careers in the midst of this utterly shocking and devastating loss. And you said you didn't talk a lot about music. It also seems like you didn't talk a ton about Ian either, if at all. No, it's a Northern uh, English <laughs> phenomenon, yeah. uh, along with slagging each other off constantly, <laughs> that uh, you don't show your feelings yeah, and you don't talk about it and literally we just buried the grief and got on with it. And I mean, and it did give us a, a focus and a drive to ignore Joy Division. You know, we not only ignored in many ways uh, his death, we also ignored the group. We ignored Closer coming out yeah, and all the subsequent press. We ignored Love Will Tear Us Apart becoming a hit. Right. We ignored the whole lot and just said, no, we're not talking about that. We're just getting on with it. Put our heads down and got on with it. And I mean, and it did work. It made New Order a massive international success because we never looked at Joy Division and yeah. never had anything to do with it. And I think one one of the things you never really discussed or acknowledged yourselves is how against the odds it was that you went on to have another enormous success or bigger success yeah, as New yeah, Order. I mean, that, that that should have been impossible. But it was always tempered, you see. I mean, I think that in a way, New Order has always felt... Uh, I used to um, liken it to a wonky table. With Joy Division, <laughs> the table never moved. Yeah. And you'd push it and it'd be like, wow, that's brilliant. <laughs> but with New Order... It was always wonky, and you were always putting a beer mat under yeah. the um, table because you couldn't keep it right. You know, sometimes it'd be really wonky, and other times it'd be okay, <laughs> and then it'd be bad. And uh, I mean, them lot took it to to think that I was talking about Gillian, which I suppose in a, in a funny way it was. But the the big problem with that wonky table was you'd lost Ian. Yeah. Because he was the guy that balanced it out and made you wonderful. And once he was gone, you were forever, as a group, trying to fix that. You know, and it never works. We, we could never fix it. But it actually gave New Order a, um, a sound that was quite unique in its own way. It was very vulnerable. It was very delicate in some ways. The use of the electronics, because it was new, you were experimenting, and then you got an experimental feel to the music that Joy Division didn't really have, because it yeah. was very confident. Yeah. If you listen to an album like Unknown Pleasures, it's supremely confident. It's absolutely amazing to think that four 21-year-olds had made that record. Yeah. Right? And even we couldn't handle it because Barney and I wanted it to sound like Sex Pistols. <laughs> and yet Martin Hannett thought we were absolute idiots, which we were. Because right. if you'd have made that sound like Sex Pistols, you'd have absolutely ruined it. <laughs> you know, it's a ridiculous thing to do. But you listen to movement and you hear something that's quite vulnerable. You know, it really did affect you. It affected you much more than we let on. Yeah. And always did do. And even when you listen to New Odor now... Yeah. There's always something missing. Mm. Mainly me. <laughs> <laughs> but even but before that. But there's still yeah. something missing. Yeah. From the strength and naturalness and the ease with which you used to do it as Joy Division. But you get, you know, a wonderful vibe from it. It's yeah. true. Blue Monday has a unique vibe. And when, as soon as it kicks up... I mean, I used to get paranoid with New Order that everyone used to say to me... Um, you know, as soon as you start playing, we know it's New Order. And I thought, oh, that's bad. That's bad, that. And when I got to Revenge, <laughs> I actually stopped that. 
Right. Didn't use the bass in the way that you used to use it in New Order. And I'm like thinking, why would I do that? How stupid. Yeah. It's like not using your strength. And it was David Potts with Monaco that brought me back to that. And when I went back to New Order after Monaco, I was a, you know, a much happier, more balanced musician than I had been when I came out. One of the things about their early use of electronics is how wildly impractical it was as a stage setup right i mean you you, you were you were and, and and admirably you were sort of running the sequences live as opposed yeah. to tape which is a kind of a, a distinction seemingly without a difference but there really is a difference and there's a massive difference but it caused a lot of disasters yeah right? when we watched depeche mode mime into a uh, 16 track eight track <laughs> tape machine yeah I, it did not feel that's like something you shouldn't be doing yeah it felt bad watching it felt bad and we were happy to do it because as you say we started off with a little box a little dr55 that you used to just press stop and go on it's that big <laughs> oh this is really handy this you can put it in your pocket yeah and then progress to god four dmx's five profit fives two profit ones two Moog sources, three emulators, because they were so unreliable that you couldn't rely on any... I mean, the, the hilarious story was when we were doing a gig in Germany and the emulator 2 wouldn't load again. Yeah. And we were trying to load it with a floppy disk over and over again, and our sound guy was getting more and more irate, and he went, hang on, I've got an idea. We thought, oh, wonder what idea we've got, that's weird. Anyway, he walked, and you watched him walk right from the far side of the hall all the way up come on the stage walk across walked over to the emulator picked it up and just threw it on the floor and fuck me it loaded <laughs> is that different from the hitting it and hitting no, it with a hammer story no then we discovered that you could do the same thing if you hit it underneath with a hammer <laughs> On the top left-hand leg. And we we were getting phone calls from other groups. We got one famously from Erasure, I think it was, uh, saying, uh, it's Erasure here, we're at a gig in Bournemouth or something. Which leg do you hit with the hammer to make the emulator too load? And we go, top right, top left, mate, top left. And he go, right, right, and he'd boom, and it'd work. Right, electronics, but pre-computers. And, you know, these guys, these boffins, mainly yeah. in America, it's all your fault, yeah. were building it. And um, they couldn't make it reliable. Yeah. Because it was so delicate. Right. And they were giving it to you as a road instrument. And this is just the worst thing you could do. You could literally move it from one corner to the other and it broke. Right. You know, we, we, we used to have a full-time uh, electronics technician with us trying to make them work. And it would just be like roulette. But it led to some really interesting variations on stage right. and some really wacky <laughs> happenings and it always kept you a bit unpredictable and a bit unsafe right. and people never knew what they were going to get when they came along to a gig and they were out of tune with the heat yeah. the heat in a gig would make them go out of tune <laughs> the oscillators wouldn't match up it was just bedlam you'd have to be nuts but we soldiered on with it I remember right. when we were touring America the, the first thing we'd do when we arrived yeah. was go and get the keyboards, check them out, and then I'd have to drive and find somewhere to fix them. Yeah. You know, so I'd be driving around Chicago, Detroit, San Diego, to these <laughs> mad addresses in the middle of bloody nowhere where someone <laughs> would try and fix your right. keyboards. Right. You know, nuts. Arp quadras and all this crap. It was just ridiculous. But you were so used to it, that was standard behaviour for us. I mean, when we actually went to using backing tracks... Right. 
you still have that feeling that somehow you're cheating. Right. The the other thing that strikes me in, the, in this book is the extent to which um, the band's history is also sort of a financial horror story. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, and, and it's just such a, you guys are all you were smart guys, but everyone makes the same mistakes over and over and over again. Do you feel some level subconsciously guilt that you so much money is coming in so you don't want to keep track of it properly? Or, or is, what, what do you think it is? Because well, it, it's horrifying what happened with, with your yeah, money. I mean, I suppose, I suppose the greatest <laughs> arsenal in managers' uh, cupboard is, is that you're so busy doing what you're doing Yes. Every need is met. Yes. So you're not really worrying about your gas bill while you tour in America, tour in Brazil, doing this, doing that. So they more or less have carte blanche to do whatever they bloody want with your money. And we aren't the first group that no. it's happened to, and no. we won't be the last. Yeah. So if you look at a band like the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, they've all suffered from it incredibly. You know, everybody, this happens to all musicians. Musicians are intrinsically stupid and easily diverted. And you, you of course, you had the f- complicating factor of uh, the hacienda, the club that yeah, which had. was the like a it was like a storm drain <laughs> on <laughs> your wallet. It is the most impossible money pit of all times. So you have a moment when you come back from tour, you each got a check for I don't know nine thousand pounds or something, mm. and you immediately first s- money we ever earned. You yeah. sign it over to hacienda. Yeah. And I never it- complained <laughs> because what had happened is 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 that all of a sudden you'd have a moment of clarity and you go, hang on a minute. <laughs> I, just, uh, just hang on a minute. What, what's going on here? What, what's happening here? This isn't right. And then someone would go, "Anybody want a line?" Right. And you go, "Oh, <laughs> a free drink." Oh, you know, you can easily divert a musician. I'm afraid, and they got away with it. And then you'd forget, and then it'd be, "Oh, I can't be bothered." And then you know. It'd be like that, and it was it was absolutely true. You know, the amount of money that you've wasted. I mean, it's quite interesting, actually, being... Uh, I mean, I'm a musician who manages himself. Yeah. Now, managing yourself is the worst thing that you can do because if you've not got a manager, a lot of promoters, agents, they won't even talk to you. Yeah. Right? Because they're ripping you off, mm. and they don't want you to know. <laughs> right. Right. But the manager is party to it because he knows that everybody in rock and roll is ripping each other off. But don't tell the act. (laughs) Right? Now, I'm that unique thing at the moment that I'm a manager player. Right. So what happens is is that they'll go, um, oh, there's a merchandise cut, you know, at the gig. Yeah. I'm going, why is there a merchandise cut? Right. And they go, what do you mean, why? (laughs) I go, why is it? You hire the hall, right? You charge for parking. You don't give me any of it. You've got the bar. You don't give me any of it. Why do you take a few quid off my T-shirts? Right. <laughs> because it's something we've always done and your manager always agreed to it. And right. I, no, no, I'm not fucking agreeing to it. So don't. Right. Give me a cut of the bar. Give me a cut of the cloakroom. Give me a cut of your car park. And then you can take a cut of my T-shirts. <laughs> Otherwise, piss off. Now, the thing is, is that most bands never notice. They never hear about that. So right. it just comes in and it's one of those stupid rules that everybody adheres to. And I always say the same thing. Listen, mate, we're going to be arguing here about $500. So just stick it on the higher fee. And then we won't have that unseemly argument at the end of the night over a few T-shirts. Right. But you can't break convention, you know? I mean, every, every industry publishing, I should imagine, would be exactly the same. But the ones who gets the kick in the bollocks is the actor. 
when you had the Hacienda, which was just, did it ever make money during its no. original? Yeah, Never. okay. So why at some point <laughs> weren't you like, could we shut down this fucking club and, and start making some money? Quite simple, yeah. because what had happened is when they'd opened it, they took out a load of loans. Right. And in his haste, he'd got the group to um, guarantee the loans. Right. So if you defaulted Oof. on those loans, they came around and they took everything you had anyway. Right. Which we didn't have a lot. Right. But they would have taken it. And you also so get, you couldn't. You, so you had to keep going, and it was like a hamster on a wheel. They got you into such stupid financial conundrums. Yeah, you couldn't get out of it, and you had to keep on going. Otherwise, you you would have just been screwed. And I mean, it took Rob Gretton seventeen years, and he nearly blew it at the end. Anyway, it yeah. was a complete <laughs> cock up. You know, in the Hacienda book, he 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 wanted, He was so desperate because he was addicted to the um, club. Yeah, he was so desperate to reopen it again that he went and borrowed money off the gangsters, the very gangsters that closed the bloody club. He borrowed money off them to open it again, and then the bank manager, who was the biggest gangster of it all, <laughs> took the money. And then, of course, the gangsters said, "Where's that money gone?" And the biggest <laughs> gangster of all, the bank manager, had taken it, and you couldn't get it back. So he was up shit street, and I had to give him the money. Mm. I had to lend him the money, as if I'd not lost, lost enough over the years. I had to pay for, to get him out of this situation with the bloody gangsters. It was ridiculous, you know. He, he, he was absolutely addicted. He was a gambling addict, yeah. as well as a cocaine addict and an alcoholic. He was a gambling addict. Yeah. And it, his big thing was gambling, risk-taking. Yeah. He was addicted to it. You guys also paid one of the biggest fines in the history of uh, taxes in the UK, yes, right? Yes, yes, we did, yeah. The tax man was <laughs> delighted when he told us that. You, you, you've paid the highest highest tax fine of any band in the UK. I said, oh, fucking brilliant. How, did you want to go back and strangle your past self as you wrote about this stuff? And, and I'd, I'd certainly it? kick him up the arse. Yeah. But, you know, the thing is, is that one thing that I have learnt is, is that you can't really... Um, if it's it's like that thing you know like hot tub time machine yeah go, oh don't step on the cat <laughs> don't step on the cat because the whole course of history will be changed right, right and the thing is is that at the moment i'm actually really happy yeah with myself and then you're thinking well if i had gone back and changed it well it might not it wouldn't mm. right you might not have you had can't. the same kids you know well, yeah, yeah yeah i mean yeah. something would have been different and yeah i mean you know our manager always used to say i don't know why you're moaning about money <laughs> because you can't buy a heritage like this and I'd say well you've had a fucking good go right you know what I mean um, so yeah it's a typical uh, odd way of looking at it you know he'd be, he'd be like you two would kill for a heritage like this that's <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell that next time I'm on U2's yacht. Yeah, right. Uh, you know, and yeah, but you know, it, it, it was good. It was good for us to be always short of money. I mean, when I opened the factory in Manchester in 2008 or whatever, 2007, I made more money from the factory in Manchester, my club, in two months than I ever made out of the Hacienda in 16 years. <laughs> well, that's good at least. Yeah. So because my partner in the club is a businessman he's got 20 clubs right and when I come in with some harebrained scheme he just goes fuck off no we'll be bankrupt just like your other club if we do that now if you think about the clubs in Manhattan yeah they used to be like that yeah. tier 3 hurrahs danceteria uh, area in particular was you know full of art installations and sharks in tanks I remember and tableaus and they had a dance floor that was like Mad Max, yeah. all ruined vehicles and all like that. Like now, you know, and I know that 
bleeding club didn't make a penny because right. it must have cost a fortune <laughs> to run. Right? right, but club owners, and they always say if you want to make a small fortune out of a club, start with a big one. Right, and that has never changed. Yeah, you know, and there's, there's only way, it's hard. You know, it's really boring. Yeah, to be a businessman. Yeah, and really nobody will remember you for being a good businessman. But if you're an idealist and a um, cultural entrepreneur, which is what we were. Yeah. You change history, you change the course of music, you change the course of clubbing, which is what the Hacienda did. Everybody stands there now and goes, look at an example. What an example yeah. the Hacienda was of clubs. It's the shittest example because it never made a fucking penny, right? But, but yeah. But it, it had a huge heritage and a huge cultural impact, right? Now, Factory Records... It's the same. Yeah. I remember talking to one of the acts on Factory and he was saying, you know what pisses me off? They all say how, how wonderful Factory was and how forward-looking and how extreme and how um, contemporary and they changed the course of music. He said, surely the only requisite for a record company is to pay the act. <laughs> and they couldn't fucking do that. He said, what? everyone says they were great. He said, they were shit. They only had to do was sell records and pay the act. <laughs> Small details. Small yes, details. Yes. So you, let's not burden ourselves with small details. Sumner's account of the band. Is there anything that you see that makes you take more blame onto yourself for the uh, split between you guys? When you when you kind of read and hear the the way he talks about you, do you ever go, ah, well maybe I screwed up on that front or this front? That'd be like um, Adolf Hitler blaming it on the tailor who made the uniforms. <laughs> he made the uniforms, it's his fault. You know what I mean? It, it, it is as ridiculous as that, Yeah, in my opinion. Right. So, I mean, you know, the greatest thing about Barney's book was it really showed me how not to write a book on New Order. <laughs> how so? Because there was nothing on New Order in it. And I thought he did himself a great disservice, actually. Yeah. Because he's a f uniquely talented individual. And I'm sure uh, most of our fans would love to hear what's in his mind and what drives him to make the music. But he didn't focus on any of that. He had 100 pages on 30 years of New Order, and he spent 69 of them calling me a twat. <laughs> Get over yourself, girlfriend. It's like that, isn't yeah. it? You know, I've moved on. Yeah. And it, it really was like a spurned lover. Yeah. And it, it was so sloppily done yeah. and was so inaccurate. And that's why I did the piece. Now, uh, you know, hopefully you guys might, might very well be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, uh, you know, in the next sometime they, they should damn well get around to it um and uh would you be willing to perform with them on that night at the moment it'd be like you know when you you split up with someone you love sure and you're at that horrible bit where you're cutting up each other's clothes and looking at the dog <laughs> with a saw and going well you're getting the back end <laughs> right that is how it is at the moment so no we're at that bit where you're That's cutting the suits up, mate. It's it's absolutely ridiculous. It, it, after I, the group split up ten years ago, yeah, and we're still at it. This is going to be in a true New Order fashion, the worst group breakup in history. <laughs> you said in the interview that the two of you couldn't work together anymore. No, I hated his attitude. I thought his attitude yeah. absolutely stunk. He was like a spoilt child, and I stood up for years of him making us lot miserable. 17, 27 of us. But then when he started making 10,000 poor twats in the audience miserable as well, I thought, someone's got to put a stop to this. He, he was, I mean, you know, he's, he's a fantastic musician. 
and they're allowed to disappear into their own world yeah or up their own arse as we say in the north of england and that's what he'd done but he was unapologetic about it yeah and i just couldn't stand it you know the irony is 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 that i did it because i thought he was being disgusting to the fans yeah and then he manages to stab me in the back bring the bloody band back in a pretense of being new order and what do the fans do <laughs> flock to him there's irony for you that'll bloody teach me a lesson won't it <laughs> one of the things that that was interesting and people think only you know i don't know they think maybe only hair metal bands had fun in the 80s and that that some the bands like new order were just you know being dour all the time but the truth is you had a tremendous amount of fun yeah well I, we we had uh, in all things a wonderful amount of fun and you know the thing that was important in the book was to show how hard we worked yes well that's so true, that it just course. wasn't a litany of bloody drugs and it was hard work Work. It really was, and we struggled. You know, the hacienda was terrifying. Yeah. In and you know, you you knew you were changing the world, and you knew how important it was. But my God, it was terrifying to the people you had to deal with on your own. And you know, you wonder why you were off your head. You had to be off your head. You'd, you'd, be, you'd, be, up, you'd be stood there, and somebody go, "There's a guy running around the cocktail bar with an Uzi." <laughs> Be going, oh, not again! No, God! And then you troll off down to the cocktail bar. Now, if someone says that to you, you should be going, "Get me a cab!" <laughs> not going. I'll nip down there and see what's going on. You, you, you know, but you, you, you'd become that. And new order was very difficult. Everything we were doing was completely tempered. Every success we had was ruined by the the record company, which was ridiculous. I hate to say it, but changed the world uh, and the club. That was, but it kept you grounded. Yeah. And like my mate Tony Wilson said to me, you've got a lot to thank the taxman for because he's helped you make great records. If you were fat, comfortable, and happy, you would not be making great records. How much hesitancy did you have in including the kind of sex and drug stuff in, in the book, of which there's a, a fair and entertaining <laughs> amount? How what what did I have? Did you have any hesitancy? No, about no. Going I mean, there? The, the thing was is that um, it was. A big part of it yeah um i i also felt that i had to be honest about my failings and my actions so it wasn't just about everybody else there was right. also a lot about me in it i thought that was very important there's also a lot about my life that maybe you know most people wouldn't have written about you know the abusive marriage the drug addiction the treatment the rehabilitation all that lot you know, it, it did strike me that um, a lot of people have been through rehab and never written about it. Yeah, yeah. So that was a great delight because it was like one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Yeah. It really was like one flew over the cuckoo's nest. It was hilarious. Yeah. You know, you, you, you were torn up thinking your life was over, but you were surrounded by this madness. So it was very entertaining in that respect. You yeah. Know, you, you did have to work very hard to reestablish yourself and get your life back and get you back. And that's one of the reasons why I wouldn't change anything. Yeah. You know, I mean, what, what I'd done uh, was simply lost myself. Yeah. And I had to find myself. And my mate quite rightly said, well, you be careful looking for yourself, because when you find yourself, you might not like yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, I, I like myself now. But yeah, I mean, no, I, I, I hesitated. And uh, I took certain things out that were too much, mm. um, which I'll have to save for another day. Yeah. And um, uh, legally, I was prevented from, uh, you know, putting a lot in, to be actually. If it, if it had been free, you'd be... You'd be reading that and going, <laughs> thank God for Max Mosley and the English privacy laws um, <laughs> for many people, is all I can say, including myself. Yeah. yeah. I think before, 
even with substances before it got out of, con- out of control. The, there was some good times. Oh, we had some great times. Yeah. You know, I mean, in the, the 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 problem we have now with the group, which was ruined everything about New Order for me. The only reason that I got any joy de vivre and love for New Order back was doing that book because mm. I was able to go back and look at the fantastic times we'd had, the fantastic things we've achieved. Headline Glastonbury three times, for God's sake. You know how many bands can say that? It's like, it was wonderful to do to make me realise that whilst we might be at each other's throats now, as fat old blokes, maybe not so that, but we did change the world, not once. We changed it twice. twice. Three times with the Hacienda, four times with Factory. Yeah. And that is and, worth writing and about. An, and an extraordinary musical evolution. You yes. Know? I mean, it, you go from the earliest days of Joy Division to the, the poppiest, you know, moments of, of, of New Order. And, and it's just, you know, it, it, it's a journey. I don't think mm-hmm. people make journeys like that musically anymore. New Order in America was so big. Yeah. It was amazing. Unbelievable. And when we got to our biggest literally doing the 30,000 in those huge theatres that you used to have in all the amusement arcades we split up yeah <laughs> it's like yeah. we're addicted to starting again every time we get somewhere we split up we come back together we get somewhere again we split up like the crowd that we split up in front of in um, <laughs> Uruguay was 125,000 people Mm. And we split up after it. And before we go, I mean, what, what for you, now that you had a chance to look back at this band's entire career, what, what was the, the peak moment for you? Oh, God. The peak moment is obviously talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I can't no, blame they, you. I they, can't blame you. It, it was, it, it's nice to be appreciated for doing something well. Yeah. You know, and that's what makes me very, very happy about being a great bass player. I still have to go and pick the dog shit up in dog, dog shit up in the morning, you know, from my dogs. It doesn't help much then, but it is nice to do a job and be appreciated for doing a job well. Yeah. And that's wonderful. And seeing my son come right up in my footsteps mm. to be able to play with me and play just as well as me, if not better, because he always says he plays better, <laughs> um, is, is a fantastic thing. I'm so proud of him. The fact that he played with Smashing Pumpkins last year as bass player. So cool. Wonderful. And he's playing with them again this year. Fantastic. You know, it's moments like that that make you think, wow, make me pinch myself. But looking, and I, I keep saying this, yeah. I, I read the other two books when I finished yeah. them. Right, I've not read this one. That was the little enjoyment that I leave myself at the end. And the things that we achieved are mind-blowing. And I'm not sure that I've ever read, and I read them all the time, Chrissy Hind, great book. Billy Idol, awful book. (laughs) Fleetwood Mac, drummer, not bad. I'm just reading um, Ginger Bakers at the moment. Um, got ready for Bruce Springsteen. I, I read a lot of these books, yeah. right? And I've never read one as wild as that. Let me tell you, it is definitely up there. Uh, and I, I recommend it highly. Again, uh, Substance, Inside New Order by Peter Hook. And uh, we've been lucky enough to have Peter with us. And this has been Rolling Stone Music Now. Uh, be sure to come back and join us next week at 1 p.m. on Volume. And download us as a podcast on rollingstone.com slash podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next week.